The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Thank you, guys. Um, this is Amanda Frost. I want to welcome everybody to the ACB Maine 2023 Convention. Um, our theme today is vision, very important services in our neighborhood. We have, um, we have a pretty full agenda. I do want to announce that one of our guest speakers cannot make it due to illness. Um, so Natalie with Lotus will not be presenting today. Um, but thank you everybody for being here today. Um, a very big thank you to Linda Perel and Cheryl Peabody. They made today happen. So thank you guys. Um, and thank you to all the board members who made this happen too. They sat through all of the, um, all of the board meetings and gave great feedback. And Nicole, she took on the um, nominations committee and so thank you Nicole um, I know we have wonderful people with us today so these ground rules will be pretty basic and easy to follow um, be respectful and kind before speaking you can use the prompt to raise your hand um, or just say your name if if you unmute you can um, just say your name and, and we'll know who's talking um, appropriate language and um, comments. Um, please mute yourself when you're not um, talking and then um, like during presenters and um, unmute yourself when you um, have any comments or questions. Um, now I have a little icebreaker that we're gonna do for attendance. Um, when I call on you, just say your name um, you can say where you're from and then say a fun fact about yourself or a hobby. And then for everyone else, so you, everybody can unmute at this time. Um, if, if you have that connection with the person, if, if you like what they said or you've done it, uh, feel free to say connection and we'll see how many connections everybody has with everyone else. So, um, I will just start so that everybody can kind of have an example. I'm Amanda Frost, president of ACB Maine, and I live in West Gardiner. And I have been whitewater rafting. Um, so if everybody can take their self off mute. And if you have done whitewater rafting, just say connection. Um, connection. Yeah, awesome. All right. And so the next person is Linda Richards. I'm Linda Richards. Yep. I'm li I live in Vassalboro, and uh, I really don't have any hobbies other than taking care of kids. Connection. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, um, okay. Um, next is Linda Perel. Yeah, Linda Perel is now here on the panelist side, having snuck in under the wire and having had uh, sign-in problems earlier today. 
So where are you from, Linda, and do you have any hobbies? Oh, Lordy. Um, I live in Westbrook. You're okay, Linda. It's early. <laughs> I live in Westbrook, and um, I'm a voracious reader and a political junkie and um, love talking to people and hang and connecting with my grandchildren who are far away from me now. Connection. <laughs> Next is um, Nicole Supers. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Super. Cool beans. Um, so I am in Winthrop. And I enjoy rock climbing. Oh, I've done a climbing oh, wall before. Connection. I've done a yeah. climbing wall before, yep. but not that. So I'm going to say sort of connection too. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That must be fun. Um, um, and then I have Nikadichi. Okay. Thank you, Cheryl. Patricia Monahan. I'm a retired vision rehabilitation therapist with the Iris Network. And I guess I enjoy being retired, actually. It's really <laughs> nice waking up and doing what you'd like to do. And, um, and I enjoy coming to meetings like this and, and hearing um, from people that I haven't heard from for a long time. Connection. 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 Thank you, Patricia. Hello. Thank you so much. Um, and yes, perfect. Next is Roger Fuller. Okay, I'm from Lewiston. I'm a retired English teacher and high school principal, and I enjoy taking my sight dog Bella for walks all around town. Connection. Uh -huh. Wonderful. Thank you, Roger. Ginger, is it Kutch or is it Cooch? <laughs> no, it's Kutch. It rhymes with butch. That's how I remember how to okay. say it. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I'm Ginger Kutch. I'm from Damascata, and I also love walking out with my dog. Sorry, Roger, I didn't mean to copy you. Roger was my English teacher, by the way, when I was in high school. <laughs> oh, that was a Small long world. time ago. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Ginger. Nancy Matulis. Hi, I'm Nancy. I live in Dover Foxcroft, Maine, and I have eight grandchildren. And I love to garden and I love to read. And I also like to exercise. I do a lot of walking. And I served, yeah, I served on the board for probably a good 20 years. I'm now retired. And she also did serve um, as president for some of that time. Beautiful. Thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. Um, now we have Cheryl Peabody. Go ahead. Thank you, Amanda. This is Cheryl Peabody. I live in Winslow. And I guess my hobbies or one of my hobbies is um, I take art classes. I take art lessons. Oh, nice. 
I have never taken art classes, but I would love to do some because it's beautiful. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Cheryl. Sure. Um, Next is Bruce Archer. Where is Bruce? I'm right here. Hi, Bruce. (laughs) How are you? I'm doing well. I live in Presque Isle, Maine, way up here. The crows calling calling at me. With the birds. Uh, (laughs) I've been on the board and I was president for a while. My my biggest, well, I have several hobbies, but I work on Harleys in my garage, and I go fishing and camping and canoeing and kayaking and hunting and stuff like that. Grandkids. Yeah. My, grand, my grandkids are fun to play with. I guess that's all I could talk for three hours, but everybody knows, so but I'll be quiet. We have some time to fill in. Go ahead, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. What, she doesn't know what she's saying, does he, guys? Anyway, go ahead. I have to be kind. That was a rule. I, I know. I hate that rule. But anyway, go ahead. Pauline LaMaintain. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm from Portland, Maine, and uh, one of my hobbies is following sports. Go Red Sox. <laughs> is and, that a connection? Uh, That's a connection. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'm not sure where the connection thing is because I had some of the other people I would have connected with, too. Um, <laughs> thank you, Pauline. Thank you. Nathaniel Batson. Uh, hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thank you, good. Uh, hi, I'm Nathaniel Batson. I am from Fairfield, yeah, Fairfield, Maine. And the hobbies, <laughs> I guess I like to do, I enjoy going to various concerts. And I just went to one yesterday. Uh, it was the Danish String Quartet. And there, when you say the, the best, they kind of literally are the best kind of quartet in the world. That, you know, the University of Maine was able to get them. They've been trying to get them for around six or ten years, I think. You know, because they're very high, high demand quartet. They came from Vermont to Maine for one day. <laughs> now they're headed back up to Vermont to perform. That's amazing. Wow. Thank you. Connection. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here, Nathaniel. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, next, I have Mary Ellen Frost. Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning. This is Mary Ellen Frost. I live in Clinton, Maine. The sun is shining today, and it's a day to be with the family, the yeah. ACB family. <laughs> Connection. Connection. Thank you. Connection. Don't forget Carolyn VV. Did I? Let me look. Yeah, okay. Carolyn Beebe. (laughs) Thank you, Cheryl. (laughs) Hi there. I'm Winthrop, Maine, and I love anything outside, gardens, walking, all that kind of thing. And Harbor has been my best friend over the last four years. Um, I've set slowed down a little bit. Like some of you know, I have to have hip surgery, so we've been kind of locked down for a while. But my greatest gratitude is having the connections with ACB and Pine Tree. Um, I've had the good fortune and luck to work with all three agencies off and on through the starting in the early 70s. And to have a chance to connect with everybody and stay connected 
because of our organizations. It really, really means a lot. So <laughs> congratulations for such a great um, agenda that we have today. It's incredible with the work that everybody did to put this together. So that's it. Thank you so connection. much, John, and connection, connection. Thank you. Um, I do want to say thank you also to Cecily. Um, we have Darcy and we have Cindy, who is running the um, Zoom media for us today. So thank you um, for doing this for us. I think what we're going to do right now is we can read the, um, the um, bylaws. Um, we have a proposed bylaw. And Linda, you have that with you. So if you'd like to I certainly do. This will only take a moment and then we can uh, begin our present our panel presentation. So okay. We have two uh, proposed amendments and what this is the first reading. It'll be read again in the afternoon in the business meeting, at which time we will have a vo voice vote to see if we um, accept these um these potential changes. So there's two um, proposals. So um, the current language in the first one is 1.1 annual dues will be assessed at $15 per year, effective as of October 1st, 2020 for the 2021 calendar year. And the um, proposed language is annual dues will be assessed at $20 per year, effective as of January 1st, 2024 for the 2024 membership year. And the second um, uh, amendment. The current language is um, members who are delinquent for two years will be dropped from the membership. And the proposed language is 1.2, delete 1.2. And um, that is it for the proposed amendments. Thank you so much, Linda. Um, so the next thing is a gift card giveaway. We have 10 gift card giveaways today for $100. Um, it's a Visa card. And for you to be eligible for this, you have to be present. And Cheryl, will you do the honors of um, asking Alexa for a number for our first gift card giveaway? Sure. Alexa, give me a number between 1 and 21. Here's a number between 1 and 21. It's 12. 12. I don't know if you guys could hear that. Yeah, yep, we did. <laughs> 12. Oh, that's me. Oh, no. No, no. Yeah. No. 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 Not allowed, Cheryl. You got that, Cheryl. Good job. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Cheryl programs her Alexa, guys. <laughs> did. Amanda. Yes, you are no. wonderful. No, you deserve Not it, allowed. Cheryl. You have done so much. Thank you. Somebody okay. else pick next time. <laughs> now we have 
we have our three-person panel. Um, I believe Cheryl, yeah. would you like to introduce? Yes, um, what we're gonna do is we have um, three panelists um, plus uh, Nancy's assistant who are gonna talk about their individual um, agencies. They're gonna talk um, successes and challenges and anything they want us to know. Each panelist will speak roughly 15 minutes and then we'll open up the floor for questions. So I'm going to introduce one at a time, let them speak, introduce the next one, let them speak, and introduce the last one and let, that, let them speak. So Nancy Moulton is a program director for education services for the blind and visually impaired children through Catholic Charities Maine. She has been working as a certified teacher of students with visual impairments for 35 years. She has a bachelor's degree in special education, a master's in rehabilitation teaching for the blind, and a certificate of advanced studies in educational leadership. She has presented, presented at the Association for the Education and Rehabilitation for the Blind and Visually Impaired, otherwise known as AER. Um, she uh, presented at a conference in Reno, Nevada, and various other AER conferences throughout her career. Um, she lives in Wells with her husband, and her two grown children have left the nest. <laughs> Says it all. Go ahead, Nancy. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, I'm I'm very um, honored to be here today. So um, I will give, you know, kind of a, a background of our program. Hopefully this isn't too repetitive for those who know it well, but just to give everybody a sense of what we do. Um, and then if you have questions, I, I love questions. So, um, so we um, are a program that um, provides all of the teachers of the visually impaired um, throughout the state to schools and families at no cost to the schools or families through a contract with Maine's Division for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So we have the contract with DBVI, and then we are able to provide the services to approximately 300 students um, throughout the state from, you know, Kittery to Fort Kent and beyond. So wherever, wherever students are, um, it doesn't matter if the student is in a um, public school or private school, or um, is homeschooled. Um, so we work with students of all abilities. Um, many of our students are students with multiple challenges, um, including cortical visual impairment and cortical visual impairment, which means that the visual impairment is um, due to the structure of the brain and, or a brain injury and the message not getting to and from the eyes, that eye condition um, is certainly one, the leading cause of blindness in, in children in the United States. Um, mm. So when we look at what we do with students, we always begin with a functional vision learning media assessment. So we will go, we'll meet the child, we'll do an observation, we interview the families and those working with the children. And we look at how is that visual impairment impacting the child's ability to access their education. 
And so from there, we will work with teams and provide consultation and sometimes direct service to students, making sure that they have the skills they need um, to, to, to be successful, to be as independent as they possibly can. The framework for what we do is based on what's called the expanded core curriculum, otherwise known as the ECC. And the ECC incorporates, I think it's nine different areas, and I'm not gonna rattle them all off because I don't have a cheat sheet in front of me, but it includes communication skills, independent living skills, um, assistive technology, career awareness, orientation and mobility skills. Um, let's see, did I say social skills, independent living? Um, so uh, sensory efficiency. So, and, and so there are a total of nine of them. Um, and we look at those when we're working with children to make sure that they have the skills that they need to be successful. So over the years, one of the things that we have been doing, um, and uh, I, I'll talk in a minute, some of our challenges, but one of the things that, that we really enjoy is offering opportunities to work on those skills um, outside of a typical classroom. So we have what we call field trips, but they very much have goals and, and um, purposes to these events. And we're able to connect kids with one another and teach these kids in the natural environment, the skills that they're gonna need for success. So we have been doing that. Um, we started, I think the first field trip we ever took, which um, some of you on this call will, will know is the um, scavenger hunt. That was kind of the impetus for, um, you know, we've expanded beyond that and we've done all kinds of um, field trips now. But, um, but we started with scavenger hunt, which started off with um, students grades sixth and older. And we went over to the main mall. We gave them a list of things they had to collect, some things they had were free, some things they had to purchase. I think at the time, now mind you, that was 30, almost 35 years ago, I think we gave them $2 and they had to buy whatever they could on their list. I think we're up to five now and they don't buy much. Most of what they do now is find out where you can buy different things or what the costs are or, um, and they'll bring back other things. But so that's kind of where we started. And now our field trips include things like um, we've gone to music stores, we've gone to ice cream shops, we've done um, volunteer work. So we, we've done career awareness where they've job shadowed. So we've done all kinds of different things. We do these field trips in conjunction with DBVI. So we're working with O&M instructors um, and, and, and the blindness rehab specialists. So we're really trying to take a very um, cohesive approach to providing this. So it's not isolation, it's working as a team, which I think we do really, really well in Maine. One of the challenges, probably the biggest challenge that most of us have, I think I can speak for all of us, I'm pretty sure, is staffing. It's it's getting, um, you know, recruiting and retaining um, qualified individuals to provide the service. So we need, in, in order to be a teacher of the blind and visually impaired, you need to be certified by the Department of Education in teaching students with visual impairments in Maine. So in Maine, it's 291 is our certificate number. Um, 
And we need people who are able to meet that um, certification. We have done pretty well lately getting a couple of new people. So last year we had two people who did their student teaching and were hired even prior to finishing their student teaching. And last year we had two people and this year we have two people. So those two people are ready to go. They've just about finished their, their um, practicum. They're really close and they have actually started taking on students. Um, so that's been really good. The problem is we've also had people who have retired and will retire in the fairly new, near future. And we also had one person who unexpectedly passed away. So it's been challenging in terms of the staffing. And, um, and I think that that's probably always going to be a challenge until we can get more people recruited into the field. So we've worked really hard and continue to work hard and ask you to work hard <laughs> to find anybody who who you think um, would would be interested in becoming a teacher of students with visual impairment. The program that we work with very closely is that with UMass Boston. So if you know someone with a bachelor's degree, I ask you to have them contact me um, and I would love to to get them, you know, to have a conversation, maybe have them connect with a teacher in their area and they could um, job shadow. But that's really our biggest challenge is trying to make sure that we are planning for the future in our um, in our staffing because it, it really is a challenge. Um, so that's probably my, my biggest challenge. One of the things that I am excited to be able to Reinstitute, if you will, is something that we used to do uh, many years ago, and it looked um, different in different years. But we started a um, an in service for teachers who were going to have a student with a visual impairment in their classroom. Mm -hmm. So it started out back, oh, probably over thirty years ago. I think we did it in Augusta, and then we decided, nope, we needed to do one in Bangor and one in. Portland or South Portland. So we did that for a few years and we did both of them each year. Then we changed it and we did, we alternated years, one year in Orono, one year in Portland. And then we took a break and we offered it through webinar. Um, and we probably haven't done this in person for um, I would say at least five, five years or so. Wow. Um, and we are ready. We have, have found that people have really been asking about it and have talked about the fact that that was one of the best in-services or trainings that they had ever gone to. So given that feedback, we said, let's try it. Um, and it will probably look different than it has looked in the past. We are going to offer it um, in Augusta. So we have that much figured out. That's about what we have figured out. We kind of have the, the general date and we're going to offer it in Augusta. I have the location. Uh, it'll be at UMaine Augusta. Um, and we're going to offer that to teachers. So by, by spring, by May, we're hoping that they will identify teachers who will likely have the students with a visual impairment in the classroom next year. And that way we can provide them. It's an all-day training what we've done in the past, and I can't promise it's going to look exactly alike because I'm pretty sure it won't, but we've done like a general overview session. 
then we've done some really intensive simulation work where people have put on simulators, they put on blindfolds, and we've given them a whole host of activities to do. Um, so we've done that, including orientation and mobility, like for, particularly for those who were um, going to have a student who would be a cane user. We we really have, um, we had some O&M folks who kind of put them through their paces a little bit, just to give people a little bit of experience and sensitivity to some of the um, challenges that face a student with a visual impairment. And then we also offered like strategy sessions. So if you're going to have a low vision student, you were in one group and we really talked about what are the things that you might see, some of the equipment you might see, some of the things you need to keep in mind when you're creating things like handouts. And then we did the same kinds of things for student, for teachers who were going to have a student who was a Braille reader in the early grades and then a Braille reader in the high school um, because those kids have very different needs. And so we talked, we would talk about what were the things, showed them tactile graphics, kinds of things like that. So it's really to build awareness. It was, it's a general session. We don't talk about specific kids. We just talk about here are the things you need to know about visual impairment. Here are the implications this has um, for you in your classroom. And we will be there to support you. So what we really try to get the message to folks is relax, take a deep breath. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to work with you. We'll help you with resources. We'll help you with strategies. Um, and, and it has worked out well. I will say that one of my newest, um, TVIs called me a couple of years ago and asked me if we still did that inserts. And I, and she was a current special ed teacher or she, I think, yeah, she was a special ed teacher. So she called me up and she said, do you still offer that? I loved that training. And I said, no. And she said, I want to learn more about it. And I said, well, we haven't offered that but how interested are you? And I got her connected with the UMass program and she is now one of our newest TVIs. So mm -hmm. that's exciting. Um, and so finding, you know, TVIs is is probably one of our, our biggest, biggest issue. Um, so let's see, I'm looking for, when I think about one of the questions that I think when Cheryl and I talked uh, about, what do you want me to talk about? She said, um, you know, some of the challenges and some of the things we've done in the programs, but also, you know, how how you can help um, as consumers. And what I think about in terms of how you can help as consumers is, um, you know, there are occasions where we would really love to to connect kids with mentors, to connect kids with people who are working, who are doing um, interesting things out in the community. That's, you know what we really need. So if you're interested in doing that and you want to contact me, um, that would be great. So, and, and the other piece, so that's the one. And then the other is um, anybody, you know, who's interested in a TVI one more time, right? So, <laughs> so um, that's big. The other just little tidbit I wanted to share with you um, last week or the week before, I don't know, they all run in together right now. We had our Northeast AER conference uh, in Portland, which was great. And we had lots of different sessions. One of the sessions I attended was really interesting. And I thought that it would be something that, you know, that this group should at least think about and consider. There were two people who presented and I printed out 
their information, but I don't know what I did with it. Um, am I lucky enough? No, nope, that's not it. Anyway, Liz, um, I have the information and I think I sent it to Cheryl, but um, yes. there were two people. There was Liz, um, who was a, an attorney who um, was significantly visually impaired, lost her vision um, later in life. And then there was Dr. Mike, who was a, or is, I think, a, a physiatrist, a physician. And um, he had, he is also experiencing visual impairment. Um, and again, it was later in life uh, that, that he experienced this. So they were both very, um, were presenting on some of the things that they have done in Massachusetts to build awareness. And Liz has formed um, an LLC, a nonprofit, that really works at building people's awareness around disabilities. Um, but what they did was they thought that it was really important to go beyond when you're looking at something like White Cane Day. They said, it's one thing to take a walk. It's another thing to put the, the legislators. We need to build awareness in the legislative section. So they actually got legislators. They put them under blindfold. I don't know that they did all that on White Cane Day, but they really started looking at trying to build awareness, but but by actually putting people under simulators, having them travel with a person with a visual impairment um, and really have done a lot of things. As they continued in this venture, they developed a program with um, the Mass College of Pharmacy's optometry school out in the Worcester area. And they developed a program called WalkFit where they paired somebody who was visually impaired with someone who was not visually impaired. and they just went out and walked. It was building fitness, building relationships. Um, and I just thought those were interesting ideas. Then what came from that was a program called Talk Fit. And once a month, they have a Talk Fit conference call. And at this um, uh, presentation, they said that they would welcome if other people wanted to join that call. They had to contact Liz um, and, at, you know, to get the specifics and to make sure they don't want to go over a certain number. Um, but I don't think that was something that she expressed a lot of concern about. I think my guess is that their numbers weren't weren't terribly high sometimes, but it might be something this group would be interested in, at least knowing about. And certainly you can... Um, do whatever you want with that information. But I thought it was an interesting session to attend and um, they were both great speakers and, and very um, interested in building awareness around visual impairment and disabilities. So I guess I will ask if anybody has questions for Nancy. To Can I read. ask a question right away? I'm sitting sure. here with a burning question. Nancy, um, I worked at Perkins School for a number of years um, as a social worker, and so I have a lot of folks that I know that went through the UMass program. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wondering is, is there still funding for people who want to attend that program? Thank you for asking that, because now I can expand on it. So yes, <laughs> there is there is still um, federal monies for that, so which is great. And that federal grant, so I'm not sure of the um, cycle, there are five-year grants, but they go at different cycles. I know they did just get awarded another grant, but I think that was O&M. So the TVI grant though, there is still in existence, um, but with that grant, there is a, um, there's still a small portion that has to be paid for each class 
but our Department of Education has said that they will pay that remaining cost. So this actually is, as you're drumming up business for us, um, this actually is a free master's degree um, for all intents and purposes. You know, it they DOE will pay for that additional cost. And right now, now I don't know, you'd have to get the, the specifics from UMass and from um, the Department of Ed, but I'll, you know, just reach out to me and I can get us all connected. Um, I will say you need a you need a bachelor's degree. If it's in education, it's that much easier. If it's not in education, you'll have a couple of classes that you will have to take um, prior to starting the program, I think, um, that are called ed leveling classes. And I think it's teaching, reading and teaching math or something mm -hmm. like that. But um, there are a couple of classes you have to take either before you start or at the beginning. Um, so those are things to know. Sure. Thanks, Linda. Good question. Bruce. Yes. Hi, how are you doing? Good job. I'm good. How are you? The, uh, I'm good. I know that, that TVIs can be a very time-consuming uh, job when you're teaching kids. Is there a waiting list for kids to get services at, in Roosevelt County? I know we lost so, our, our so, TVI, but besides right, I that. Was, I was just going to say, Bruce, um, there is no waiting list, no. So we are working on, um, so this TBI passed away just a few weeks yes. ago. So we no, are working sad. on trying to, it is very sad and, and, and um, you know, difficult for us, obviously, as a program. Um, right. But we're working on that. And I don't believe there'll be a waiting list. We have one of the new TVIs who just is ready to go is, um, is going to be taking some of those kids. And I have some of the more, some of the other TVIs are going to, some of the consult kids we're going to be able to meet. So I think we're going to be fine. I don't think there's a waiting list right now. I know it has been a problem in the past, but it has. Yep. I know, yep. I know how much you can, you can work with one kid forever. So it's not, not like it's bang, bang, you're all done. Right. But anyway, okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Hi, this is yes. Ginger. I just wanted to thank you for your presentation. It was very informative. Um, and I also had just one quick question. I wondered if you provided services to students who were in college, whether they came up through your program at their residence or if they're out of state. So, no, we, our services are from birth to 22 or completion of high school. So if they graduate from high school, then we no longer are able to provide um, TBI services. Hopefully at that point, if they needed something, they would be connected with the Division for the Blind and they would help get them any services that they might need. Okay, thank you. Sure. Um, I was just curious for if there were folks who were interested in mentoring or, or volunteering in some way to support you guys, um, how would we go about doing that? Send me an email and I will check in with and just see, you know, what, what we can come up with. Because I just know that it comes up for us every now and then. It's not a lot, but, you know, let's let's talk about it. So um, shoot me an email, Nicole, and we'll connect if that's what, if you're interested or you want to share that with anyone else. Yep. So I just awesome. want people so to much. know that after the convention today, I'll be sending out um, contact information um, from our present presenters so you can get in contact with them. Um, Nancy, this is Linda again with one, one more question. Um, when I lived out West, uh, for a number of years, uh, 
Bruce hates it when I say California, but that's okay. I lived in California. So we had um, in our chapter of CCB, the California Council, we gave away a scholarship or a grant every year to um, students in um, elementary and high school for technology equipment that the state or the school district couldn't provide. And we would have a um, an award ceremony for it in which to which the parents were invited. And we found that um, the parents sitting with a group of blind people all telling them what we did for jobs and careers and what have you was it really seemed to light up the parents' faces and sort of get a sigh of relief that, yeah, yeah, my kid does have a future. And I wondered if you ever did anything where you brought a group of parents together and could maybe have some of us go and talk to them about, you know, life after school. <laughs> We've done a few programs and, and really in conjunction with DBVI, DBVI has done some. So I'll let Brenda talk a little bit about some of those. But just, you know, we've, we have definitely done programs with parents, um, multiple, we've done multiple programs throughout the years, um, and sometimes have, um, have brought in individuals, well, they were part of our program um, with visual impairment, it wasn't, you know, and so um, we have done that. I, the, I will say that, that we struggle sometimes with getting parent engagement, and, of course. Um, yeah. you know, and the rural nature of Maine does not make that any easier. So, um, but yeah, we, we've definitely done lots of parent things and, and have, but it's all a collaborative, it's all done collaboratively. Are there any more questions for Nancy? Not any hands up. Okay, thanks. All right, we'll go on to our next presenter. Our next presenter is Brenda Drummond. She's the director of the main division for the blind and visually impaired viewer Bureau of Rehabilitation Services, Department of Labor. She's been with the division for over 30 years in various capacities to include business enterprise program administrator, rehabilitation consultant, and a brief time as the assistant director before becoming the director in 2017. Brenda received her bachelor's in psychology and her master's in business administration with a minor in human resource management. She has served as co-chair of the Council of the State Administrators of Vocational Rehabilitations Committee on Customer Service for Adults and as chair of the National Council of State Agencies for Blinds and, and <laughs> Blinds Employment Committee. And so, um, Brenda, I'll turn the floor over to you. Thank you, Cheryl. Can everybody hear me? Yes. I didn't make it to the rehearsal to test all the equipment, so I just want to be sure. Um, so first off, thank you for having me. Um, this is great. It's it's nice to be with you all today. And I got to say, I haven't seen some of you for a very long time, so I'm very happy to uh, hear your voices and, and have so many familiar people here. So thank you. Um, so like Nancy, I checked with Linda to see what is it that you want to hear. So I really have focused on challenges and successes. Um, as you all know, I, I'm assuming the Division for the Blind and Visually Impaired works with people from birth till death in four different programs, education, 
vocational rehabilitation, uh, independent living, and also the business enterprise program. So the challenges are going to go across those programs, successes as well. But what I also did, I thought, well, you guys don't, you all don't want to just hear from me. So I asked our lead team at the division to tell me at least their number one challenge and their number one success. And I will tell you, I think on challenges, we pretty much aligned. So a lot of this you're going to hear repeated from what Nancy said. Staffing is probably our number one challenge, especially right now. I said in a meeting recently that this is probably the biggest turnover, biggest vacancy number in the division since I've worked here. So um, just to go over a few of those, just like Nancy said, now this is going to be a broken record, except for I'm going to go with a different discipline and David's probably going to go with the third one. But um, we have a hard time getting certified staff. Our biggest challenge in that arena is the orientation mobility specialists, our instructors. Um, we have 11 positions across the state. And we're down um, two vacancies right now, two full-time vacancies, someone out of maternity leave, one position. We do have a contract person working to cover that area. So that one's covered. But the two big ones in Portland, we've had one vacancy for over three years. So I, like Nancy, uh, I would ask that if you know of anybody that has any desire to go to work as an orientation and mobility specialist or wants to know more about it to reach out to me um like nancy we have done many different types of recruitment they've done a video they just and nancy has a video on tvis so the onms did a video and then they did one just like the tvis to talk about maine and what it's like to work in maine which isn't out yet fully um we've done recruitment with farmington we have, um, I was at a session, a panel session, really wasn't about recruiting O&Ms and I threw it in at the end, just to make sure everybody knows we have vacancies and we would you know, be thrilled if anybody wanted to reach out and talk to us about it. Uh, like Nancy said, this, our biggest um, place that we get recruitments from is UMass. They have a program right now. I would need to you know, circle back to them to see it how much they pay the O&Ms, but um, with the grant before there was a little bit that people who were interested had to pay, but they were making an exception for Maine people. So I don't know if that's still true right now or not because we haven't had any interest lately. Um, so that's a big one with the turnover. Um, uh, we had, you know, obviously somebody retired and somebody left for another state to go to work as an O&M. We are finding that pay has a big Big, is a big component of it, but it's within the state system, so we don't have a lot of um, area to move around in the pay. We also just had a resignation in Portland of a VR counselor. He was the veteran VR counselor with the division, so um, he's he's gone to do work in the private sector. Uh, and we also have two vacancies in our, what what is called the blindness rehabilitation specialist. And that, that position really is working with families and students younger, and then as they move into the vocational rehabilitation. Sometimes they'll keep those students as they move into vocational rehabilitation, just depending on the relationship or if we're down a vacancy, they all can um, keep a caseload. 
And then we also had, uh, we have regional directors who are the supervisors, North and South. And um, many of you probably know Judy Wolf. She retired after many, many years of state service. And she was replaced by Tim Small. These names may or may not mean anything to you. Um, but Tim worked with us with the division for a few years and moved up. Well, he actually was in the vocational rehabilitation first, then came over to DBVI, then went back to vocational rehabilitation, and now he's back with DBVI. So he's got a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience. And then Andrea Bickford, I'm sure many of you know Andrea Bickford. She retired after 30 some odd years of service. And um, Carrie Brooker is her replacement and she's starting on Monday. This is how recent, you know, so much of this is. So um, the Carrie was a BLRS, a blindness rehab specialist. So that's one of the vacancies. And then Shannon Burns starts on Monday with Division of Vocational Rehabilitation as a rehab consultant doing training for staff. So those are big shoes to fill as well. Um, we're all, you know, moving around. And I don't know how many of you know, but I'm retiring at the end of this month. So then there'll be another vacancy. Um, so that's one of our biggest challenges. Again, reach out to me. I'm going to say this probably three or four times. Reach out to me if you know anybody that wants to become an O&M or just wants more information. Maybe they don't know they want to do that yet. So I'm going to tell you some of the other challenges that some maybe from the lead team or maybe mine, but um, general funds, getting you know our budget lined up is always a challenge because across the programs, there's different regulations, different percentages that you have to have with general funds, federal funds. And we're always trying to, uh, I call it the shell game so that we move stuff around, move money around so that we have the right proportions in each program. Um, one person said, and Nancy touched on this one, creating and maintaining connections with consumers and their families so that they get to um, connect with each other and they get to the resources that they need. And this person felt that COVID played a big piece in this because as you all know, um, COVID was a lot more isolating for people. And a lot of people decided they want to put their services on hold basically because they didn't want to be out and they don't want people coming in. Um, and two big ones that I'm sure everybody says, yeah, those have been challenges for years, but transportation continues to be a big challenge. Um, as long as I've been here, transportation has been a challenge, you know, for our consumers. And so anybody that has any wonderful ideas about how we can do better with that, I'd love to hear them. Um, another one is lack of low vision providers across the state. Nancy has some great ideas and uh, we'll hopefully get to put some of those to work. And we're certainly looking for any information anybody can provide on those as well. And I did wanna let you know that we are in the process of working on our state plan. It's a four year plan now. So it's due in March. And in that we're trying to capture needs across the state. So we'll be doing a, uh, it's also the year for our comprehensive statewide needs assessment. We'll be putting some information out to individuals, but um, that's where we will we will hire a company and they'll actually do a survey. So somebody may get a call or an email, and it's asking about you know your needs and services. What did you think of services? But you don't have to wait for something like that. It's random, so you may or may not get selected. Um, but you don't have to wait for that. If you if you know there's a need and you know it's not getting addressed, please reach out. 
because we want to capture all that and we want to try to do better. Okay, moving on to successes. Um, and Nancy hit on that one. I think, I think, and many of the staff echoed that, that our biggest successes is the programming that we've been able to do. We're able to, because we go across all those different age uh, brackets, we're able to hear the needs of either students or adults and develop programs that will meet those needs. For example, and, and another success is we have really creative staff to be able to do that. And does as does Nancy, as does David, because as Nancy said, we work collaboratively and we need everybody to the team to put it together. Uh, but some of the programs are, many of you may remember employability skills program that we ran almost 10 years ago. We call it ESP. So this year we had ESP retreat and that one's really focused on adults looking for employment. So um, we had 10 individuals this year, which was wonderful. I think it was a week after the program ended, it's week long residential program, someone was employed. So whatever they learned, you know, during that week to interview, they were interviewing the very last day of the program and they actually got the job. So that was very exciting. Um, but that was a very good program. Like I said, it was a one week residential program and they really took a look at uh, what is it that you wanna do for a job? What are the jobs out there? What's the market, the labor market? Um, interviewing techniques, anything that they might need. And again, that gave them an opportunity because it was residential to really talk to others, to see, you know, how their, um, you know, what their needs are, how do they deal with it? Uh, so really great program. That one is pretty much run by staff between the three agencies. Then for the first time ever, we did what we called WOLF program, which we love acronyms. So we're very acronym heavy, um, which stands for winter outdoor leadership and fun. And this one was really focused on students. Uh, I think they were mostly 14 and 15 year olds. So this was a great opportunity for them. This was a weekend. So they got to do some winter outdoor activities. One student was a little, I think the oldest one, maybe 16. He got to do some leadership, develop his leadership skills throughout because he was working with the other students. And they all, this was at a hotel, so they all got an opportunity to stay at a hotel. I think some of them, it was their first time. Um, so that was a great experience. And then they, and we worked with um, uh, Orono, uh, Umaine, their outdoor adaptive, um, blanking on the name of it, but their their program, out, Outbound, I think it is. Yeah, I'm looking at Nancy, I'm not getting anything. Um, but it was in conjunction with them as well. And on the Sunday of the program, we brought in younger students so they, that all of that group, the older group could then work on their leadership skills and work with the younger students for outdoor activities. Um, and they also did climbing wall. So it was another, I, I would consider successful uh, program. Um, we did life camp again with David. I'm sorry, David, you might have been, I won't tell, I won't tell the, all the story of it, but life is, learning, independence, fun, and employment. So it touches upon all those aspects. It's held at the IRIS network. Um, we had a number of, well, three students this year. I'm gonna save some of that for David because he kind of nodded. So I think he might want to touch on that one. Uh, as Nancy said, we did the expanded core curriculum. 
We have a lot of staff involved. They call it, many of them call it for us after school program. So students in high school, there's some middle school that will go to this and they'll um, participate in different activities. Like they might bake, you know, it's life skills. They might bake at one of these sessions. They're talking about doing a um, gaming session because so many of our students like to do the video and the gaming. So it's just activities that they enjoy and can, you know, they get together with other students. So that's a chance for them to network. Uh, no barriers, no acronym on that one. Um, that is a program that we do, a weekend program during usually the summer. Uh, it's held over at Bryant Pond. We actually hire a company to come in and provide um, the instruction for that program. But it's a chance for students to work on their team building, network with other students, um, learn about what their barriers in life are. And that this is the third year we've run that one. And students, some of the students, some students want to go back for the third year. And we said, well, you know, a couple of years is good, but you know, we're going to stop at that point. So, um, but it's really, really important that we're all working together, you know, all the agencies um, to provide these programs for the students and the adults. We don't want to get the adults. Then a couple other of our successes is our collaboration with our, um, I call it sister agency, the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, because we are two separate agencies and not every state has the collaborative relationship that we have. We have been able to bring students together in some of these programmings. Like this year for the first time in No Barriers, we had both DVR and DBVI students, and it gave them an opportunity to you know, talk to each other, learn more about other disabilities as well. Um, so that's been, and we have been nationally recognized as having such a collaborative relationship. So like I said, not all states are like that. And the more we can work together to provide things, you know, the more the students or adults will have successes. Um, and another one that um, one, of our, one of the lead teams said was that our staff are very knowledgeable and resilient. I mean, think about everything we've been through the last few years um, and the staff are still going strong, still being creative, flexible to provide those quality programs to students and adults. And one thing I did want to just add that I thought of while Nancy was talking is we do this contract with Catholic Charities for the TVIs. We contract with Iris Network for the VRTs for both the VR program and the IL program. And this year, or this this RFP, I should say, it's been in the last couple of years, we were able to secure those contracts for a 10 year period. So there's that continuity for individuals going through these programs for a much longer period of time. Um, so that's been great too. That's what I came up with. If people have um, questions, I'm happy to answer them. So I see Linda Richards. Yes, that was me, thanks. Um... Just a question, I'm not sure which one of you to ask, but I officiate over the VISTA group here now, and a lot of my people were asking about counseling to deal with being blind, like some people just lost their sight. I just lost the rest of mine like two and a half years ago. And most of them really hate being blind. <clears throat> and they can't seem to find any counselors 
to talk to to help them through that. Do you know if there's any in Maine? I I I guess that's so. I can provide you with one resource. I, mm -hmm. might, I might have to send you the number after because I'm not sure I trust my memory or I can look it up. Um, but Carrie Brooker, the one I spoke about that's going to be doing um, the Northern Regional Director, mm -hmm. um, she provides adjustment to blinding blindness as well. She holds group sessions or individual sessions. Now, she's taking on a new job, so, you know, I don't know what her availability will be, but I would certainly try her. Um, you wait one second. I, I don't yeah, get that off her number without looking that it would up. Be, that would be amazing to maybe have her come to a Vista group. And yeah, speak it, with her. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's great. Um, Brenda, just send me Carrie's um, okay, email I can and do that. phone number or whatever. Okay, that's perfect. Because then, yeah. Okay, Brenda, thank you, hon. Sure. This is um, Pat Monahan. Um, hey, Pat. Tell Gene I said hi. Hi, Will. He'll be seeing you soon. <laughs> um, my question, actually, I, I, I was going to ask a question in regards with technology, but once I heard about the um, personal adjustment counseling, um, it made me think how, you know, I've been around for a little while and there used to be one person in the state, um, well, more than that, but who would do personal adjustment counseling. Um, and then one of the things that was explored was how any counselor can really help adjustment to blindness as long as they have some education about blindness. In other words, it's not the end of the world. Here's things that can be done or, or, or mm -hmm. whatever. As long as they have some, you know, so that's, I mean, something that would might be a good thing to be discussed in the future. I think, um, especially yeah, if somebody newly, I um, encountered that a whole lot, what Linda was discussing. Um, yeah. But anyway. The technology question I had, Brenda, was um, are there, I mean, in today's world, there's technology everywhere, um, and are, are there specific staff people, like within Catholic Charities, maybe for the kids, or, and, or VRTs, and maybe this is really a question for Nancy and David, who are specifically trained with teaching technology, um, you know, because it does, I mean, you can say it's an activity of daily living and a CRT should do it, but if you really don't have specific training and say using JAWS, if people still use that, I don't know, um, it's really hard to teach. So I'll start it, but certainly Nancy and David, if you want to expound on that. Um, I should have put AT as a challenge, because that is certainly a challenge across the state. Um, but both organizations have CADIS certified staff. And I, right, Nancy, that your person is certified or they're close if they're not. Yeah, I just signed something. So I think okay. she's minutes away. Okay, <laughs> yes. there we go. There we go. So there is that um, capacity within each organization. I don't know if David or Nancy, if you want to add to that. David does. Yeah, yeah we have. 
We have two uh, CATA certified individuals on staff, uh, both in the northern state, uh, northern counties and also in the south. Um, we have an interest by one other BRT who's actually going to be going through and getting CATA certified as well. Certainly where a lot of uh, the learning is going moving forward. So we wanted to invest in that. So two currently with a third coming uh, soon. Good. That's wonderful to hear. I, that's always been you know, the personal adjustment counseling and the AT. Um, great. Thank you. Thanks I appreciate you folks meeting and talking to us. <laughs> Hi, Brenda. It's Ginger. Long time. I know. Anyways. I know. Great. To <laughs> I can't see I you because your camera's off, but nice to hear you. Uh, and now I'm on the phone. I had a question. I wondered if, while you mentioned that the pay is probably the biggest problem for um, getting O&M instructors, and I don't know what the process uh, is to um, have their pay increased by the state, but is that something that consumer groups can help with or initiate or go to the legislator? Or I don't know how that works, and I was just wondering if you had a quick answer for that. <laughs> yeah. Um... There has been a, they call it a classification and compensation study, and that was across um, all, for all state employees. So they will be, they are looking at that. And I just heard last week that they're going to have more information on that coming out soon. Now, um, I know in the past, um, people have requested, you know, that orientation and mobility specialist. This was years ago, so I've been here a long time now. Um, you know, get an increase in pay, and that did that did go forward. So, um, I think it would need to be initiated. It's hard because I don't think it's just O and M's. I think it's across the board for you know VRCs, everybody. So, we certainly are pushing and and trying to get more for people. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a contract, state contract underway right now, and they are looking at. I want to say it's a five percent if it passes increase retro to October. So I guess my short, quick answer is certainly um, I think it, it could help. Let's maybe we can, maybe we could circle back around and talk about that more as to what it would look like. Sounds good. Thank you. Sure. And I see Bruce's hand. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I used to be Brenda's favorite employee. Anyway. <laughs> And he went and retired. Then you went and retired. Yeah. Oh, I know. Anyway, my question is, let say, let me turn voiceover off. Uh, as you as you recall, I'm sure is the homemaker program for the elderly, basically. Mm -hmm. Is there any talk about bringing anything like that back? Because we we have a, a huge elderly program uh, population up here, and they're not getting what they used to be able to get, of course, because the federal government decided to end that program. And he so, talked about that coming back. Well, let me just back up so everybody understands that the homemakers used to be, what we called the homemakers, were in the vocational rehabilitation program. And with the um, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, they the VR program is really focused on competitive integrated employment, CIE. So homemakers were not falling within that bracket, that category. So um, if there's needs that the elderly population that you're describing, Bruce, have, we still have the independent living program. So what's 
what we've seen happen is most of those individuals have applied for the IL program. And, and so if that's, that. if that's not happening. I understand that the IL program doesn't have the money that the homemaker used to have, of course. And, and that's always... right. There's a certain amount of money that goes into the IL program from the federal government. Um, that did not increase with no. WIOA. <laughs> Um, but again, we can use, as I spoke about the general funds for that, which we have gone back to the legislature a couple times and asked for additional funding in that program. And we were fortunate enough to receive it. Um, but as you know, Maine is a aging, you know, population. Yes, we're one is. of the oldest, you know, states in the, at least yeah. in the New England. So um, it doesn't always, you know. We might not always have enough to meet everybody's needs, but we certainly try to be creative and, you know. Yeah. Um, the IL program is great. It just doesn't, uh, you know, some things just aren't available like they used to be. But, yeah. and I'm, but I'm we certainly getting... try to be creative yes, with it. Yes, they do. You do. And I'm, I'm not getting any older, by the way. I'm not stopped mm -hmm. doing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay. Thank you. Good to see you thank too, you. by the way. Yeah, you too. You so too. Sorry you're retiring, but I don't know what we'll do now. Um, this is Linda with a question. Hi, Linda. <laughs> Hi, Brenda. I'm so, so sorry to meet you when you're going out the door, you know, just <laughs> incredible. Anyway, I have a question that might open a can of worms and maybe you and David could address it. I wonder where you fall on the issue of um, the new proposed certification of occupational therapists to become VRTs with uh, less quote unquote training than the current stringent VRT program um, requires. Any thoughts on that? I'm going to let David take that one. If he, wants. <laughs> he can't. He came off mute, so I think he wants to. So that's good. Okay. Well, I, what uh, I was going to say was, since Brenda is not long around much longer, maybe she might want to take it. I could see that it's a hot potato I, issue, guys. No, I, That's I, I don't, you know, <laughs> you can ask my staff. I, I like to pop right into hot bottom button things because I have my opinion and uh, everybody else has their opinion and I can be wrong or I can be right or somewhere in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. um, I have found that the way that we are operating currently with certified VRT staff is working. And if something's not broken, you don't need to be tinkering with it. Um, also, there's a whole nother set of routes you can go down about reimbursement rates and so on and so forth. At this particular point, um, we have an incredible amount of uh, VRTs. I think we might, if we're not number one, we I think we may be number two just behind Florida um, with the most VR, uh, CVRTs in the nation. And wow. so we're very fortunate in that regard. And so I am not going to upset that apple cart and uh, know that it has been working. I know we can continue to improve, but I like where we're at and would like to continue to work uh, under that uh, direction. Thank you. Can ACB I... is very happy to hear that opinion. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't even know that beforehand, so I just got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Brenda, you owe me a beer for that one. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> May I say something? This is Pat Monahan. Go ahead, Pat. 
just as being a former VRT, I, I did it for 15 years, and many times an occupational therapist would um, call me with questions, or I did um, some type of training with occupational therapists. I just feel that folks um, who are losing their vision and where it can be very traumatic, I feel that they should get the best quality care um, from a professional. Therefore, I think a program is very specific to what their needs are um, for training for these professionals would be best. Not to say that an occupational therapist maybe wouldn't do a good job, but there are a lot of things they may miss just because they don't have that training. So anyways, I just had to throw that in. Thank you, Pat. Welcome. Thank you for listening. <laughs> um, our final panelist, final, uh, but, but certainly not uh, forgotten panelist is Dr. <laughs> David Barnwell. Um, David was selected as executive director of the IRIS Network in 2018. Before joining the IRIS Network, David was the president of a Brighter Path Foundation and vice president of business affairs in industries for the blind based in North Carolina. So we snagged mm. him away from them. He is the immediately immediate past chairman of the board of Miracles of Sight, an established international program for corneal transplant, a member of the Missionaries for Blind Children and the National Association of Employment for People Who Are Blind, along with being a governor-appointed chairman of the North Carolina Commission for the Blind. David holds a doctorate, a master's, and a bachelor's degree in business administration. He received his doctorate from Walden University and his master's and bachelor's from Belhaven University. David grew up in Tennessee with a grandmother living not far from Helen Keller's childhood home in Alabama. He chose his career when challenged to use his power for good, which I absolutely love. So David, the floor is yours. Thank you. So I, I, I appreciate the introduction um, and the time today. Uh, I, I guess the benefit of going last is I get to hear all the wonderful things that my peers talked about beforehand, and it helps sculpt what I would present. Uh, uh, so, uh, Nancy, for going first, kudos to you <laughs> for uh, going out. Uh, um, first, I'd like to start by saying Happy Veterans Day. I mean, for those of you who may be veterans or know people, I'd uh, I always hate it when it falls on a Saturday because oftentimes people kind of get the old observed day and forget about that. So, uh, and there's a, quite a few people that we know that are veterans who've been blinded that we uh, uh, work with. And so uh, kudos to them and their their service. Uh, also, I was going to say to Brenda, I don't know if I'll be able to see you very often on Zooms much longer. So uh, if I don't, happy Thanksgiving and short timer. and. Um, I thought I would just start with a, a very great story that sort of really kind of culminates with what we think we like to share with from the Iris Network. We had, um, after several years of not being able to do this uh, because of COVID, 
we had the, the children over from middle school that's right adjacent to our offices uh, just last week. And, and um, they didn't share with us that, and nor did we necessarily expect they would, and share with us they actually had a child come over who does have a visual impairment. And they wanted her to be able to share that with us, not that um, we would know in advance. And one of the things that we always love is uh, the, the fact of inclusion and integration in all the different things that we're doing. And and just to sort of see her continue to inter, you know walk throughout our building and over at our our apartments and and see all the different things that were available. We just kept seeing her light up. And so finally we got to the question and answer period and her hand immediately goes up and starts just asking a plethora of questions. And um, it was really great to sort of see how her parents, clearly she has had some great work with Catholic Charities and, um, and what she's been able to have in her life. And she was seeing individuals she's not been introduced to um, previously, individuals that have multiple disabilities, uh, not just individuals who had um, blindness that they were dealing with. And um, it was fun to be able to sort of see how that played in her life uh, and how she wanted to continue to integrate and come over and visit the people over at IPA, which is the Iris Park Apartments. So I thought that was really just a, a wonderful time for us to sort of see how, you know, Catholic Charities working with, with this young lady, being able to come and see the individuals that we work a little bit more and her being able to connect all those dots and seeing what her future looked like was, um, it was, a, it was a, a touching moment. So I always love that, that we're able to have individuals who are able to talk to, and kind of give them the, uh, not the lay of the land, but sort of what to expect and life's not over. And, you know, but there are so many wonderful things that are still out there for you. And, and her outlook on life is made stronger for that. So I wanted to share that with you all today. One of the things that when I started uh, back in 2018 was someone asked me, one of the board members said, well, if you really had your, your druthers and your king for a day, wh where would you spend all your money? And, uh, and actually, it, it's on sighted individuals. Uh, as many of you know, uh, people have biases. I mean, we all have them. We have our opinions on things. And uh, and that's where I th think that if we're really going to concentrate, because I, I see groups like ACB and other uh, groups get together, and there's such great support structures for one another. Uh, but oftentimes, um, we run into that buzzsaw of these biases in the sighted community. And so we spend a lot of time from the Iris Network standpoint, really making sure we kind of tear down some of those barriers. Uh, the interaction, just like we just recently had our white cane walk, where we had a, a large number of individuals who came in. Uh, we wanted to make sure that those individuals who were cited and their peers really understand what our community is really like and those individuals that we work with. And and that'll, that'll continue to be a very strong component of what we do in our education to our community. Uh, one of the things we're doing is, is we're really, we have a really cool name, I think, the network, the Iris Network. Uh, and that's the part that I really wanted to make sure that we continue to concentrate is that network. That's why I'm here today. We have a relationship with, you know, Catholic Charities and DBVI and many, many, many other agencies. And we had uh, an incredible number of people showed up. And one of the things I wanted to really make sure that we were to do. And a couple of years ago, I think right before COVID hit, I went to an SRC meeting. And I said, 
one of the things I hope we're able to do is that if someone called me and I and they said, hey, can you help me with this? And it might not be what we necessarily do. Um, I don't want to say, no, I'm sorry, best of luck. I want to be able to go, you know what? I don't do that, but Nancy does. And here's Nancy's phone number, right? Not, oh, well, maybe you need to call Catholic Church. No, it's Nancy. Here's Nancy's number. Here's what you can do. And that networking, I think, is going to go a really long way. Um, and I'm not to say that we haven't done it, but as we continue to really, you know, work, work on those particular interactions are going to go a long way for the individuals that we serve. I mean, we're not going to be able to be, no one organization can be the answer for all people. But if we can say no, but I know exactly who can hand, be handed off to, that's going to go a really long way. And um, we started doing a, a lot more of that. Uh, and I articulated that at our walk on October 14th. And it's going to be something that's very prevalent in what we do moving forward. Uh, very front aspect of what you're going to interact with uh, when you're dealing with the Iris Network. Uh, we did touch on COVID uh, just a moment ago. I, I'm kind of one of those people that I don't. Yeah, we have challenges, right? We have uh, threats that happen to all the things we deal with. But I always look at those things as opportunities. I often tell people that if I would have listened the first time I was told no, I wouldn't be married to my wife right now. <laughs> and uh, so you have to kind of go figure out how you're going to make uh, that a yes, or how do you figure out how you're going to be able to leverage something and, and make it a positive. And from COVID, that was it was unfun. Now, I think everybody would agree that was not a fun time, but it was an incredible time to challenge the staff and go, hey, we can't not see people. So what are we going to do? Right. We're used to being three feet away from somebody. And um, that's not possible, especially in those first couple of weeks. It was just not possible. So what are we going to do? And so it did help with the integration of technology, of course. I mean, that was a no brainer, low hanging fruit. But to see the staff really go out there, those VRTs that, you know, across the state and do things that that did include technology and things that didn't include technology. Uh, to literally have people sit in mudrooms across from panes of glass and interact with individuals. I was like, that that shows that dedication from the staff um, and their profession. And so um that's the type of mentality that we do when we're approaching how we're going to interact with the variety of different individuals we're going to deal with because each person is unique. You may have the same eye disease, but it's still going to strike with you differently. And so we have to have a variety of ways that we're going to approach each unique individual. And so uh, as, as you might've heard, we do community rehab. We're out in the community and what we're providing through CVRTs. We do have the training center that, we do have individuals from Maine and a couple other states that come in and get training as well in vocational rehab and independent living skills and a variety of other things as well. Um, we have opened our low vision center uh, back up. Um, we, a couple of things I'll kind of share here with you is the center is open by appointment. Uh, we do have front state of the art uh, things. We were able to get a wonderful grant from Stephen King Foundation. So. It's really populated with wonderful things we want people to put their hands on uh, and take home with them. Uh, we do have things that we try to do to get that. We do have sliding skills, but we also have 
grant programs that get things in people's hands for free sometimes. And especially if they're focusing on careers and learning. Uh, we also try to recycle these things, recycle for site program. If it's not being used anymore, either because your eye, your eyesight has uh, continued to uh, degenerate in some way and you need a different piece, uh, we try to recycle that back in and make that free as well for individuals who can do that. Um, we are talking with, and this will be something that we'll know more a little bit more in the spring. We have a board member who is trying to transition her particular practice and potentially we might be able to have her help us with some low vision exams in the future. Former uh, VA doctor and at the VA, they sort of incorporate low vision as well as um, traditional eyesight. So we're trying to find those uh, low vision or pardon me, those low hanging fruit ways to be able to continue to provide those uh, eye exams. So possibly in the spring, we may have something there. It really depends on what her life is like in that period of time. But we look at those types of opportunities. And then Brenda mentioned WIOA and CIE, the, uh, the Competitive and Integrated Employment. That's a very new thing that we're approaching as well. As we're looking at how we can continue to expand on the services that we provide to the larger community of people who are blind, uh, we are looking at and have recently become what's called a community development corporation. Uh, it allows us as a, a CDC through a grant that we received through the Department of Health and Human Services to um, acquire small businesses and employ individuals who are blind and visually impaired. Our first aspect of that will start, um, we're kind of doing the crawl, walk, run aspect. Uh, we're going to acquire an organization that will close on December the 1st. Um, we'll begin to start looking at, as we roll that out, how that means we can continue to employ individuals who are blind and visually impaired. We're not going to fire people and put people in. Uh, it'll be through growth of, of uh, contracts and attrition that we would train people in there and put them in there. So it is kind of a, a wheel that as you get it rolling can speed up and slow down. But it is a new service that we're rolling out uh, as we move into 2024 that uh, there'll be a lot more articulation about as we move forward. So um, we're very happy to be able to provide those things. We're, we're really making an investment in infrastructure as we move forward. Uh, we realize we listen to the individuals that are you know, advocates of ours and also people who have used our service. We take it very seriously. And I think uh, one last thing I'd like to add before I kind of open it up to larger questions is we have a consumer advisory group that um, we listen to uh, very closely. And we'd love to extend the invitation for membership of any of you that are on in this group. If you would be interested in doing that, we would uh, love to have you as, as members. Uh, we take it seriously, um, uh, listening to individuals, uh, staff, consumers, uh, peers, all these different areas to sort of get the better idea of how we can continue to approach the services that we provide, uh, not just in Maine, but primarily in Maine and throughout. And um, I think I'm not going to really hit on life camp because we're kind of running a little bit late, but that was something that we were really happy to have a collaborative aspect with. You know, we had some people with Catholic Charities and DBVI. That was a, a really fun time to see that. So I'll just sort of open it up to see if there's any questions. I know I've kind of giving you a large spray of information here, but uh, are there any questions for me from the group? David, I recently did um, attended a class that your uh, co-worker Erica Richards does for a couple of the clients. And um, 
met uh, an, a gentleman who's uh, an immigrant from uh, Rwanda in that class. And um, I was wondering how, um, how many folks you've been able to include from the immigrant population in your services and, you know, how they get involved. If well, they're not everyone... fully vetted yet, how do, how do we get them in for what they need? Well, everybody that has come through our center has come through one state or another. I believe uh, that particular individual referring to came through New York, uh, recently graduated, uh, really, really interesting fellow, um, got to run, uh, you know, uh, where he was primarily getting his services was right there next to the elevator. So when I come in in the morning, I like to pop my head in. He was usually uh, getting his breakfast ready. So we'd have a couple of moments to be able to chat. And it's always great to be able to um, uh, offer services, especially when you have the professional staff that can really go beyond that. Right now, uh, primarily it's gone through the states because that's how we continue to vet and get people introduced to us. But uh, uh, we've had a series. I mean, I can think of that. And then there's been some individuals we've helped when they house people at the expo right down the street from us. Um, it really wasn't from a services standpoint, but there were a couple of things we were able to help with some uh, adaptive tech, uh, tools, uh, handheld magnifiers and things that we had a couple of extra of that we were able to uh, make sure some of them were able to get their hands on. So. But we're always open to a number of different things. One of the things we're also doing is, uh, you might have listened in the bio that there was this missionaries for blind children aspect. Actually, Fran Kelly, who many of y'all probably know because she's our O&M and also the director of program services. She and I are going to be doing some work uh, with that as well for some children uh, that uh, they're, in, they're based out of Jamaica and Kingston, Jamaica, and they have zero amount of services and uh, equipment there. So we're going to be able to almost like a missionary's trip. Uh, the two of us to go down and be able to do some work with uh, those kids uh, to be able to provide some things. So we've always kind of operated under the mindset that if we uh, if we have an abundance of riches in some form or fashion, either through our knowledge or through funds or through uh, pieces of equipment or anything, and we have those things, we should be able to share them. And so we do that in our state and our community, but we also like to share that throughout the, the greater community people who are blind and vision impaired throughout the world. Thank you. I'll always mm -hmm. extend this out to anybody uh, whenever I do one of these. Uh, also, the staff that feel free to always reach out via email or or uh, through my cell phone uh, to give me a call. Uh, pretty good about getting back to people and, uh, and appreciate the opportunity to be able to present to you guys today. Uh, thank you to Nancy, Brenda, and, and David for being here today. We greatly appreciate your time, uh, especially when it's on your weekend and family and friend time. So thank you very much for being here. Um, for those in attendance, I will be sending out Nancy, Brenda, and David's contact information along with a couple of things that were discussed throughout their panel discussion. So, okay, we can move on in the agenda. Amanda, are you with us? Yes, I am. I'm sorry. I was muted the last time and it brought me to a different screen and I was like, ah, oh, but you guys took <laughs> care of it. Thank you. <laughs> um, I just want to um, check to see if we've had any um, attendees join Cindy. Have we had? Yes, you have. Christine okay, Bruno, she came in. 
Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Hi, Christine. Um, and so now we can do a second <coughs> gift card giveaway. Cheryl, if you'd like um, to have Alexa draw a name. Sure. Alexa, pick a number between 1 and 21. Here's a number between 1 and 21. It's 9. 9. Who is nine. lucky number 9? Oh, that's Ginger Kutch. Yay, Ginger. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations, Ginger. That's wonderful. All right. Um, and so now we can go to our next guest speaker, Cheryl or Linda. Yeah. First of all, um, thank you so much, Jen, for uh, waiting. It's a little later than um, we initially had you scheduled, but uh, I hope that you um, were with us and um, got something from listening to the other speakers as you do your work as well. So I'm introducing uh, Jennifer Battis. Jennifer is the Health Equity Project Coordinator at Disability Rights Maine, where she works to reduce systemic and policy level barriers to improving healthcare access and quality for people with disabilities across the state. She has 13 years of experience in the field and received her Master of Research in Social Research from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. We'd love to know more about that. Anyway, Jen is going to tell us um, about the services that um, Disability Rights Maine offers um, in general, and then focus on um, what uh, she specializes in there. So welcome, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so as Linda said, I'm the Health Equity Project Coordinator at Disability Rights Maine. And our organization, um, oh, let me see, is uh, the designated protection and advocacy agency in Maine. Each state has one. Um, and through that, our agency is authorized and mandated to protect and advocate for the rights of Maine people with disabilities. So like I said, we're part of a nationwide network of disability rights organizations uh, that were all established by Congress to protect the rights of all individuals with disabilities. Our mission is to advance justice and equality by enforcing the rights and expanding opportunities for people with disabilities in Maine. Um, you can find more information on our website, which is um, drme.org. Um, and mostly, I, I could get into this a little bit more when I'm talking about my project. Most of the work that um, DRM is doing is on the legal side of things um, with uh, some systemic stuff as well. Um, so my role here is a little bit different because access to healthcare, unfortunately, is not a right in the United States. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a different role than what um, DRM has had in the past. So I'll talk a little bit about the um, 
the project that we recently did, um, how it came to be, uh, and then what I'm going to, how we're going to be using this report to move uh, health care access work forward throughout the whole state of Maine. Um, so I, this, my role, I started last year, September, 2022. So just over a year. So like I said, it's pretty new for DRM. And the, basically they had, particularly over COVID, but for a long time, a lot of the issues that people have had um, have come to DRM about are specifically around access to healthcare. And that could mean access in many different ways. It could mean, you know, physically being able to enter uh, a, a building or um, have the transportation to get to the building, um, providers providing the necessary accommodations that someone might need, all of those sorts of things. And then COVID just, you know, really highlighted everything and exacerbated the need. So with that, part of what they realized was that um, there's no data about people with disabilities in Maine. So for example, one thing, like you can't break down, when they were doing the um, vaccine prioritizations, um, people with disabilities were definitely being um, impacted, particularly those who are living in, in group homes or institutional settings, um, but really everyone was being impacted and needed to be prioritized for vaccinations. However, that was not happening. And part of the reason for that is there was no data to show that there was a need, the, that there was a, a huge impact, huge disparity that was happening without um, not being able to break it down, like by even as simple as do you identify as having a disability or not, um, where you could do that with things like um, age groups or race and ethnicity, that sort of thing. So DRM realized we definitely need to do something to improve access to um, and quality of healthcare that people with disabilities are receiving in Maine. But to do that, we do need to kind of take a step back and collect some data and find out like what is going on, have that data to show hospital systems and the legislature that it's not just one-off cases where someone is having um, these access issues, but that it's impacting everyone. Um, and that it might look different depending on what your disability is, but it is a huge disparity regardless. So the, um, the project can kind of be split up into to two, two go sets of goals, I guess. Um, the short-term goals were to engage people with disabilities to collect information about their experiences accessing healthcare, um, draft a report that summarizes all of this information and included um, recommendations for what to do next, and then 
um, also de disseminate this report widely. So, you know, doing a lot of presentations at, like this, um, sharing information back to people who shared their information with us is really important to me. Um, I, I know so often people ask for data, ask for surveys, and what happens with that information? Who knows? Did anything change? So that's something where I've really wanted to focus on not only spreading it to everyone who might not be aware that there are, these issues are happening, but also let those that were involved in the process know um, what we did with the information and then update it over time with what we're doing going forward. Um, let's see, so the, so the long-term goals are to enact policy and systemic level changes that will increase access, choice, and quality of healthcare for Mainers with disabilities. And this means changes that are made in a systemic way. So, you know, whether that's how a hospital operates or insurance coverage or anything like that. So not just trying to improve the system on a case-by-case -case basis. So for this report, um, some of you may have participated in some of the um, data collection we did. We had a survey, we had um, focus groups, and then we also looked at what other information was out there. So what other states are doing, if anything. Um, over last winter, we had about 11 different focus groups where we talked to about 90 people across the state. And uh, we also had a survey that over 600 people across the state took. And I really can't understate how impressive 600 people is, especially, um, it's just a lot. And it I think it goes to show the fact that people want to share their information, like this, their stories and experiences because they want something to be done. Um, for, for both, so just to let you know, like one thing that I really also wanted to prioritize was that we're not just focusing on say, you know, Southern Maine, that we are including people and their experiences throughout the state. So we did have, um, the surveys covered over, uh, covered every, we had responses from every single county and then the focus groups, we had every county except, I think it was Knox and Lincoln, but every other county was um, was represented. And so that we did have a lot of southern, um, southern, people from Southern Maine for both the focus group and the survey, but Aroostook was the second highest county that we're, we had um, input from in uh, both the survey and the focus groups. So, we're really, you know, we did get a good uh, variety of experiences from the rural parts of Maine through the more um, urban areas. Um, when you look at the report, and I can share a link to the report um, in the chat or, or through an email later on if you're interested. Um, when you look at the report, you'll see that it's categorized um, into uh, the findings and the recommendations are categorized into five like large overarching categories. And the order of them is not necessarily, um, 
it's definitely not in terms of priority. So when we say um, the section one or priority priority area one, that doesn't mean it's the top priority. They're all equal and we'll be working on all of them um, simultaneously. But it just, um, I think we kind of thought about it as the way that someone might work through um, the healthcare system. So data is first, that's kind of this big overarching thing. Um, and then the training of the providers. So provider education, um, which needs to happen obviously before you even go into the door um, of your appointment. Third is the structural and systemic barriers. And that includes things like transportation, insurance, cost. Um, so again, factors about, you know, even getting, getting to the appointment. Fourth is communication, which was a huge one. Um, and this hits on all points of someone's experience accessing healthcare from setting up an appointment, being at the appointment, any sort of follow-up. And then lastly, we have um, physical spaces. So this could mean, um, like I said before, access to the front door, access to you know the second story of a building or issues in bathrooms and exam rooms not enough space for a wheelchair or um, things that are too high medical equipment um, that sort of thing so when we talk i'll go through a little bit about each of the um, five sections to give you some high level um, findings that that came out of this the first one is data collection. And like I mentioned, disability is an underrepresented in official statistics at both the national and the state level. It's not typically part of the demographic questions that we answer, um, you know, which means like, what's your age? What county do you live in? That sort of thing. What's your income? And there's no common definition of disability. And we're not saying there should be, um, but because there's no lack of um, common definition, when it is asked, it leads to inconsistencies and, and maybe you can't compare one set of statistics to another. Um, and then this means that the outcomes and statistics that are reported are different um, and you can't, you can't align them in the way that you can with um, age or race and ethnicity or um, county you live in, that sort of thing. Um, and so including a question about disability is important, particularly important here in Maine, uh, because 16% of Maine's population has one or more disabilities. Um, and that compared to 13% of the United States population as a whole, according to the census. And so we have a higher rate of disabilities and that we need to be um, represented within the um, data that's being collected and shared. So some of the recommendations to address this are, like I said, including um, disability status through demographic questions that could mean something as simple, depending on the project, that could mean is something as simple as, um, do you identify as having a disability? Yes or no. Um, it could be more specific around um, what type of disability do you have and more of a breakdown. 
um, but it would depend on the project, what the goals of asking the question are, that sort of thing. Um, if we have this data, it needs to be kept up to date and it has to be publicly available for everyone to access. Um, there's a lot of information you can find on, for example, the, the main CDC website. Um, and for the most part, it is pretty up to date. Uh, so you don't wanna be saying, you know, when I said 16% of the population of Maine, I do, you don't want to be saying, oh, for that statistic is from 2005. We want it to be something more recent. Um, when we're developing these demographic questions or thinking about how to include this in projects, we need people with disabilities to be included in the projects. So from developing the project, developing the data collection tools, re reviewing um, the data that was collected and sharing the report, finalizing it. People need to be involved throughout the entire process. Um, we can't be doing research reports where we're talking about people who aren't even at the table um, throughout any of this research process. It's not gonna be, I mean, it's just not right, but it's also going to make sure make the um, data the, in what you're saying with the data inaccurate. Um, so the second section is provider education, and this one we split it out into two kind of subcategories. So one is clinical knowledge, which is um, healthcare providers lacking the knowledge um, about disabilities or, um, you know, how, how um, maybe a medication interacts with another medication that someone's on. Um, there's a lot of unknown, uh, in particular, there's not a lot of research about some disabilities that are um, focused on children, but then as we're aging, there's not a lot of information about um, how this disability impacts someone's body or the aging process. And so your doctor might just say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know. And that's not okay. And I should say, I keep using doctors as examples, but this project was focused on um, healthcare of any kind. So dental care, behavioral health care, um, physical therapy, emergency rooms, primary care providers, it's the full full spectrum of, of healthcare. Um, so with that lack of clinical knowledge, the um, what came up in some of our focus groups or all of our focus groups was a lack of preparedness to treat and and a lack of cultural competency. So that's the second category under the provider education piece. Cultural competency meaning just you know how to interact with people. So not, for example, not talking to a um, interpreter, talking directly to the person, not handing someone who's blind a paper form that they, you know, probably can't fill out um, in a waiting room or um, 
thinking through that sort of thing. Like, how are we interacting with people and are we doing it in a way that is the way we would want to be treated? So just like the data collection section, um, again, people with disabilities need to be part of the, um, the groups that are deciding what's taught in medical schools or nursing schools, training programs for um, doctors, nurses, dentists, all of that. Um, and it also includes continuing education. So it can't just be a one-time thing perhaps including something in annual staff trainings. Um, and along with that, it can't just be the providers themselves, but front office staff, um, administrative staff, that sort of thing. Um, they definitely need training in both this clinical knowledge aspect as well as cultural competency. Um, and in general, doctors just need to be tra better trained to give good care to people with disabilities. And part of another way to do that is to ensure that more people uh, improve access to healthcare, like education, so that more people with disabilities can be working in healthcare. Um, you know, we all know representation is important, and having you know having a provider who has a similar disability as you might will definitely probably impact that um, relationship that you have, but also improve the care that you have um, because they get it. So the third section is structural and systemic barriers to care. So like I said, that's transportation, insurance, cost, those sorts of things. Over half of our survey respondents said that there was a time in the past five years that they needed healthcare of any kind, but they couldn't get it. And over 20% of those said it was because the cost was too high or it was something that their insurance wouldn't cover. Um, another issue with this, these structural and systemic barriers is the way that our healthcare system is set up. It's really highly fragmented. And that can make things especially difficult for people with complex healthcare needs, um, coordinating among specialists or, um, you know, going to a specialist in another state and having them communicate back to your primary care provider, that sort of thing. Um, many focus group participants discussed a lack of communication between their providers that leads to a delay in the care. Um, someone didn't follow up with someone and you've been waiting for this appointment to be made, but you haven't heard um, that sort of, or you're, the doctor's waiting on your medical records, but it hasn't happened yet. That sort of thing is impacting the care that you get because it's slowing things down. Um, options for public transportation in Maine are either don't exist, or depending on where you live, are limited, or they could also be um, there but inaccessible. So transportation was something that was discussed in every single focus group, especially those that cannot, um, who don't have a personal vehicle or can't access transportation through main care. And, you know, the main care transportation isn't a 
um, isn't perfect in, in many ways, um, but still it provides access in a way that, that many people can't, can't access. Um, so with this, we're um, looking at increasing opportunities to access funding and resources and technical assistance to providers to better provide care to people with disabilities. Um, one way that this could happen is uh, the Federal Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, can um, work with the governor to do a governor's designation that designates people with disabilities as a medically underserved population. And to do this would increase opportunities for access to federal funding and technical assistance um, through specifically through federally qualified health centers. Um, we also need to work to provide navigation and support services to people with disabilities and their families and caregivers. This could mean things like increasing the number of peer navigation or support programs, um, expanding case management services or care coordination services, increasing the number of supportive services that are available to parents and caregivers of children and, and adults with disabilities, and also in incentivizing partnerships between healthcare providers and community-based organizations that could possibly address common barriers like the transportation issue. Um, we also need to look into um, improving timelier access to care. So that could mean expanding aftercare or weekend care at primary care practices. So you're not forced to go to the emergency room if something happens on a Saturday. Um, using telehealth to better deliver services to people living in um, rural, remote, or underserved areas. Um, improving the insurance approval process, um, and then also, again, um, increasing transportation, access to transportation. Uh, the, the fourth section was communication, and this one was huge. 44% um, of survey respondents said it was difficult to communicate with their healthcare providers, and this um, often meant um, feeling unheard or not believed, not being spoken to directly, or a lack of communication uh, accommodations to communicate effectively. And 20% of the survey respondents said that their healthcare providers don't listen to their concerns, explain a diagnosis or condition, answer questions, or even involve them in decisions about their care. Um, Many people tied this back to a lack of provider education on how to communicate with people with disabilities. Um, and also the way the healthcare system is set up, um, you know, it's rare to have anything beyond maybe a 15, 20 minute appointment. And so people often felt rushed and they didn't have time to ask the questions or get the answers that they wanted. Um, and then, Deaf and hard of hearing ASL signers often had difficulty accessing interpretation services that they needed. Um, yeah, so how do we address this? This is obviously a big one and it covers a, a full range of, of possibilities. Um, one thing 
goes back to that provider education piece. So we need to make sure that healthcare workers have the necessary knowledge and tools. So that could mean, um, you know, having different resources on hand to have positive interactions with people with disabilities. Um, Going back to what I said before, that could be something like having annual formal trainings on effective uh, methods to communicate with patients, as well as um, making sure that providers know their legal obligations to provide accommodations to patients with disabilities. Um, again, involving people with disabilities in decision-making bodies um, that, for example, like a patient advisory council we need to have people with disabilities on that council to make sure that that council is addressing and working with the healthcare system to encourage and solicit improvements related to effective communication and patient access. Um, and on the other side, people with disabilities um, need to know what their rights are and should be provided with a list of communication aids or accommodations or services that are available when they're first either admitted to a hospital or um, a new patient at a, at a, a provider's office. Um, when there are communication devices that are used, they need to be working available to be used and staff need to know how to how to use them. Um, so that's another thing where um, healthcare staff need to be regularly, not just once, but regularly examining the accessibility of their healthcare technology um, that's used throughout their facility. So not just at one point in the process. And that could mean um, reviewing the accessibility of things like um, kiosks for checking in or patient portals. Uh, telephone systems, video health, uh, video conferencing systems, and websites. I know that that sort of online access was a huge thing when we talked to people who were blind or low vision, um, being able to access their information through patient portals and, and using a tablet to check in and everything was, was um, a big challenge. And so Along with that, we need to make sure that any sort of forms or questionnaires or educational material that's being provided are accessible and easy to complete. And so part of this could mean patients should be offered an opportunity to fill out forms um, in a variety of different ways, either electronically or on paper um, and have that possibility before an appointment um, for time, privacy, um, whatever reason it might be. And um, like I said, with the privacy, the providers need to be considering those communication needs and ensuring privacy when interacting with patients in healthcare facilities. Um, part of this could mean um, having masks, clear masks, the transparent masks that um, are on hand and staff have easy access to. Um, 
we could also be using a wider variety of strategies to let someone know that they're ready for their appointment beyond just calling out someone's name. Um, one of the survey comments said, make the waiting room more like the DMV. And, and in my experience, people always use the DMV as an example of somewhere that they they hate to be. So when you're using that, it's like, make it more like that. I think that says the scope of the need there. Um, and also, you know, making sure that you're not having conversations in waiting rooms or in hallways, that conversations are happening in private, um, particularly about private information are happening in places where others can't be overhearing. Um, the last one, physical spaces. So that one, um, almost one fifth, so that's about 20% of our survey respondents said they are not receiving the care, the places they're receiving care are not accessible or safe. Uh, many people reported difficulty entering buildings or navigating facilities and exam rooms. Um, several people who posted um, uh, participated in our focus groups reported that they were not able to receive diagnostic treatments because of excess, inaccessible medical equipment. Um, this is particularly true for people with physical disabilities. So things like a mammogram uh, machine not being able to be lowered down to be used by someone who um, uses a wheelchair or something like that, or um, scales that don't accommodate people with wheelchairs. There are people who said, you know, they hadn't been weighed in years because there was just allegedly no way to do it. There, there I say allegedly because there is equipment that can do it, um, but either um, providers don't have it or don't know where to find it. Um, and then, like I said, um, in the the privacy piece, so partic participants in the um, focus groups for people with um, mental health diagnoses and labels, as well as the blind and low vision focus group, discussed a lot of issues around privacy, um, exam spaces that aren't private, being seen in a hallway, um, having somebody need to prepare forms for them and answer or ask the questions verbally in a waiting room rather than a private area, um, that sort of thing. And so to address this, we need to be thinking about ways to create and implement um, and improve the mechanisms for notifying providers and staff of patient accommodations and needs. Um, maybe something like having a set of questions that is standard at that first point of contact, um, whether that's through scheduling an appointment or registration or triage. Um, it also can mean that any sort of available accommodations can be proactively communicated to patients ahead of time on their visit so that they know what is available and what they have a right to access. Um, some of this too goes to the, the, the way um, each office is required to have like a posting with civil rights, a patient's bill of rights, civil like the civil rights information, who to contact. But it's so like, one, is it accessible to everyone? Two, it, where is it posted? And, and how is it shared? And 
read is, is that phrased in a way that makes sense to people. So much of it is like these legal words that who knows what it means. So are we making this information available to people in a way that they feel comfortable and know what their rights are and know what to do if it's being violated? Uh, we also need to better equip healthcare organizations with the tools, um, assistive devices, accessible medical equipment, um, and personnel that can allow for universal access to all screenings, all diagnostic tests and treatments. Um, there, this might look like having an on-site access coordinator, um, someone who's available at all times that the facility is open and seeing patients. So that means in a hospital or in an ER, it's not just someone who's working nine to five, but someone who's there um, uh, multiple people. I'm not expecting one person to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but um, that that person would know what to do or how to, like, if someone comes in and needs an interpreter, they know exactly who to call. They've got it lined up. Um, they know how to use the communication aids or services. Um, they can assist with any sort of troubleshooting that's happening. And then, again, like I said, um, Healthcare systems and providers need to be required, maybe this is legally required, to conduct routine accessibility audits that include their parking lots, waiting areas, exam rooms, bathrooms, um, patient portals, all of that sort of thing. Um, and they should also create an accessibility, um, some guidelines that exceed the minimum requirements that are set out by the ADA. Um, we need something stronger than that to, to make sure that this is happening. So that's kind of a very quick, and um, I, I just threw a, a lot of information at you, um, a quick overview of this report, some of the things that have come out um, that we found, some of the recommendations to address it. There is a lot more within the report. Um, that report was due, I mean, sorry, due, uh, released in June. And so since then, I've, I can just give you a quick update on some of the things that have happened since then. Um, and I also am planning to send out every six months to everyone who participated in the focus groups or um, whose contact information we have regular, like every six month updates on what we've been doing and um, where things are at, maybe opportunities to participate if there is something. Um, I know a lot of people said, how can I help? Um, um, so we've already started doing a lot um, and I just wanna quickly go over a few of the things that we've done. Um, Tufts Medical School has a program in Portland, Maine and so we were working a lot with them to do a, some provider education work. This is just the start, and it's um, but it's a good start. Where um, I've been working with a medical student to review their current curriculum and identify where um, we can include more of that um, provider education piece. So whether it's the clinical knowledge piece or cultural competency piece. Um, it also means things like, can we diversify the set of um, standardized patients that they see in um, 
before they're out in the real world seeing patients. Um, we also in September did a panel for third year medical students where we had people with a um, variety of different disabilities. Um, basically, you know, I, I introduced the panel and then I said, you know, what do you want these future doctors to know? What are your experiences? What do you wish they knew to better treat you? And it was great. It was well-received and, and people want more of it. So I think it's maybe not necessarily that it's people don't want this. It's just that they don't have access to it. Um, we also worked with the Children's Oral Health Network of Maine to do a small research project. They heard about this bigger one and they said, we don't have any information about children with disabilities and their access specifically to oral health care. And they do a lot of um, advocacy work across the state to try and increase access to oral health care for children, which is a major need. Um, and they wanted to make sure that what they're doing is working for everyone, including, you know, including kids with disabilities, maybe need to think about things in a more, um, in a different way, get a little creative, that sort of thing. So we did, we just um, finished up some data collection and information for them. Um, and we'll be working with them to, to, um, to implement some stuff going forward. Um, also been working with the Portland and Cumberland County Public Health Departments on just, you know, thinking about how they're doing things and how they're sharing information. Are they, you know, if they make a, um, a if they have a website, is it accessible to people who are using screen readers? Um, if they have uh, information translated, do they also have an ASL version, that sort of thing. And I'm planning to extend this out to other areas throughout the state as well. Uh, next Tuesday, I'll be presenting the report at the American Public Health Association's annual meeting. So this is a nationwide opportunity to um, share it to a nationwide audience. It's huge. I, <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed when I realized how big it was, um, but I'm really looking forward to um, connecting with other people across the country learning about what they're doing. And, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel if someone's got a great idea and it's working. So that's exciting. Um, we also have a DRM advocate that will be participating in a legislative task force focusing on accessibility to appropriate communication methods for deaf and hard of hearing patients. So that is kind of a more specific targeted um, the, uh, thing, but looking at the communication piece. Um, and I'm sure there's more that I, I'm not thinking of, but that's a start. And like I said, I want to keep everyone updated. Um, so if that's something you're interested, you want to be on this list and just, you know, know what's going on, uh, you can definitely let me know. I can share my um, email address and I'll, I want to just get this information out there as, as much as possible. Um, so yeah, sorry. I think that was maybe a little longer, but, um, Linda, what would be the best way to share my contact information and, and, you know, links to the report, that sort of thing? Um, hi, Jen, send it yeah, to me, Cheryl Peabody. Okay. I think you already have my email address. Cause I just sent you 
an email earlier this morning. So, okay, yeah, yeah, I have yours. Great. Yeah, Cheryl's our official distributor of information. So, <laughs> if you get it to her, she will share it with everyone. Thank Definitely. you so much. There's so much um, going on, and so much is needed. So, uh, we did um, have one of our members of Pine Tree. Um, participate in that focus group with the doctors, students in Portland, and um, we um, will look forward to more opportunities to to join some of your uh, groups as they go forward. Yeah, yeah. For that in particular, um, I want to do more with. So that was with Tufts, but we also have USM and their nursing and physical therapy programs, and and more. I'm sure I'm not thinking about. And UNE, like there's a lot of um, opportunities across the state at the different um, colleges and universities to be um, getting this information out there. And I, in different ways, we're trying to think too creatively, like I don't want it to be someone's full-time job unless they want that. <laughs> um, and we can find the funding for it to be going out and doing these kind of panels all the time. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of emotional, you know, it's, it's a lot of emotional sharing stuff that maybe is not easy. And so I do want to think about how um, we can get this information out there without asking people to tell their stories again and again and again. Um, so that's something I'm, I've been thinking about a lot, too. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, I think we are ready for gift card drawing number three, Cheryl. Okay. Okay, Alexa, give me a number between one and 21. Here's a number between one and 21. It's 20. 20. If I go 20. to page two, and page two is Mary Ellen Frost. Okay. <gasps> Congratulations, um... Mary Ellen. <laughs> Let's see. Sorry. Let's see. It's there's a name that says Mary Ellen's iPad. Yes, That's Mary Ellen. Yeah. There she is. Congratulations. Okay, so it's very close to eleven forty-five. So I think we will move on to our um, remembrance. Um, and we just want to take this time um, to kind of um, remember those in our life who have passed. Um, feel free to identify anyone that you want to remember. And you can feel free to tell us a little bit about who they are. And, um, and so I'm just going to open it up. If everybody wants to unmute, feel free. Um, I know there's been several that have passed near and dear to us um, in the community, which Maria, Libby, um, Kathy Bagley, Leona McKenna, and Margie Awal. So I just wanted to, you know, just kind of mention their names because they were just wonderful in what they did for everyone and they did so much for the blind community. Um, Amanda, this is Linda Richards. Yes, hi, Linda. 
I feel Did super I sad. What's that, hon? Did I miss Leona McKenna? I said her name. No, no you, you did. She did. Oh. Okay. Oh my gosh. Anyway, today is super sad because last year I was supposed to go to Margie's house and do the convention with Marge and Leona. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting bronchitis and, you know, COVID was going around. And so needless to say, I wasn't going to go near either one of them sick. So I didn't get to mm -hmm. go. And they said, for sure, Linda, for sure next year, we'll get together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're not here. And they're not here. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I just wanted to share that. Thank you. You're going to go up to the mountain for a bit. Yeah. You all set? Yeah. They're all going to be missed so much. They will. And they were so iconic. And, and when you read their obituaries, everything that they have accomplished in their lives and what they have done just, you know, for personally for everyone and, you know, obviously professionally, you know, it's amazing the work they did. Mm -hmm. And we thank them for that. Um, Absolutely. I was working with Kathy learning how to use my MacBook Air. And she got sick, and I kept all her texts with all the commands and yeah, everything. And of course, that was the end of that too. So I never okay. met Maria, but mm -hmm. I think back to when I first met Kathy Bagley, um, and we were both pregnant with our first child. Um, and so she had Lindsay and I had Brandon and then we worked together. It was through computer work. And then we, um, it, it, uh, went through to our second child. Um, she had Abby who is known as Alaska. Um, and I had, um, Cameron. And so she used to bring Abby with her to all of our, um, little, you know, sessions and and our kids would play together and it was just so wonderful and then she did mobility and then she worked with my daughter just recently in the last like six years or so um I I um was able to you know reconnect with her and it was so wonderful and she had been dealing with her health problems mm -hmm. way way back when I first met her um you know and and so she was a fighter and she was so sweet and so kind. And I just, sure I, was. I'm so proud to have known her. Mm -hmm. um, um, that's a little bit about my experience with Kathy Bagley. I loved her so much. Yep. I did Bruce, too. Bruce Arthur. She was very cool. Very cool lady. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My least favorite part about getting older. Uh huh. Losing, Me too. Losing friends left and right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have nobody. I have nobody to tell me to shut up. Might get going too much because we used to do that. <laughs> she always yanked me back in. Unless she was in person, then she'd whack me just a bit. A bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have us now, Bruce. Uh, thanks. <laughs> you guys can't reach me from there. Though, 
Yeah, what I'm sad about, um, this is Linda Powell, um, is how, what a short time I had to get to know, uh, especially Lee. Um, and, and so funny, you mentioned, um, Linda, you mentioned, um, going to Margie's house to be with Leona. I mean, that's my, my one memory of Margie was her and Leona hanging out during our convention last year and yeah. how, how silly they could be. And, and just, oh you know, just, um, <laughs> you know, it was clear there was a deep, deep connection there. Oh, yeah. Trouble, double, double trouble with those two. <laughs> And both ladies were so funny. They were both so funny and and they did it so gently. It was just like, you know, and sometimes I would walk away from conversations like, oh my gosh, now I get that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's it was just so great to hear the way that they their sense of humor was, you know, it was so uplifting all the time. And I want to remember Maria as well. She did blind bowling with us. She did some adaptive sports. She was just involved with a lot of the community uh, resources that we did together. Um, And she came to our meetings for Vista. Um, And, you know, she, her and Bruce, they are just wonderful people. Um, And he was always leading her and taking care of her. And it was just, so wonderful to see that connection between them and how he was so gentle with her and um and when she you know she had a fall and and there was some things that happened and it was just so sad to you know hear the struggle that you know she had to endure um it was really really sad because she was such a gentle person mm-hmm. hey uh this is Jean. Can you hear hi, me? Gene. Yes, hi, Gene. Hi. I uh, I don't know what to say, but I feel pretty bad about the deceased people, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to say something about Leona. This is Pat. Um, yes. When I was working, the group, the Vista group, um, by the way, I'm so happy it's continuing. Thank you, Linda, I think, is oh, running uh, it now. Yes, you're welcome. I love it. Oh, great. Because I would refer my clients to that group quite a few times. And um, there was one particular client I had. His world was very small. He was basically bedridden. Um, in the nursing home here in Brewer. Um, I live in Brewer right now. Um, and he um, he was pretty young, actually, in his early 50s. To me, that's young. But one of the best things I did for him is to connect him with Leona, that group, initially at first, but then they became very close, and every day they would talk and they would pray, and um, now both people are passed away. But... Um, she, that's just one example of how she really made a big difference in um, people's lives. He was like, I mean, I just remember showing him how to use the remote, his remote, so he could change the channel on TV, which he couldn't see well, but, um, you know, he could still hear it. But 
he was just teary-eyed because he could do that after I showed him, and he didn't have to try to call for a nurse or somebody um, walking down the hall to do that for him. Um, you know, that's how how um, small his world really was. But he was somebody who was just in always good spirits and just very friendly and loved people and um Anyways, that was some wonderful thing that Leona did. And she had written to me and said that if there's anything he needs that Division of the Blind won't purchase for him, let me know, and I'll do whatever I can to get the funding for whatever he needs and and everything. And Kathy Bagley, I used to um, do the White Cane Walk in Bangor um, a lot, and it was hard to get other people involved. And But Kathy Bagley, she came one weekend on a Saturday with her husband, her little girls, and some friends, and helped me with that event on the Saturday morning, you know, in Bangor, and she lives in Fairfield, I believe she lives. Uh-huh. So that was just really wonderful. Anyways, I'll... I'll stop talking. Somebody else might want to say something. <laughs> Thank you for sharing, Pat. Thank you, Jean. This is Pat. I guess I have the gift of gas. <laughs> but Marjorie, mm-hmm. Marjorie, she knew me when I was five years old when she was um, going to school herself. She had my job before it was really a profession, too. And, but she... Saw me, came to the Blind Children's Resource Center in Auburn, Maine. She met me and my sister. My sister's two and a half years older than me. She must have been nine or eight or something then. She'd say to me, you children were such an inspiration. I don't remember her then. (laughs) I met Maji when I was 19. She was my first... She was my first worker at Blind Services. Yeah. Wow. I've known her forever. Feels not right is, that she's mine. I know. Is this Mary Ellen? Linda. No, it was Linda, Linda Richards. Linda. Yeah. Yeah. Where Where do you live, Linda? I'm in Vassalboro. Vassalboro. Okay. I don't want to rush anybody. I just want to give this opportunity for anyone else to share anything they would like to. Hi, this is Pauline. I'm sorry it's uh, noisy here, but I just wanted to say that um, Margie, uh, for the guide dog group, people know that she used to always joke about that... uh, Guiding Eyes for the Blind, which happens to be where uh, Ava's from, that, that that she considered that, you know, the best school. But she was just joking about it, that one of the things with Pine Tree is we're very thankful to have members from many different guide dog schools. And um, I the other thing is, and I think it's already been mentioned, that Margie was a very spiritual woman, and she would... Um, call and usually whenever we finish the conversation we'd say god bless you to each other and Mm -hmm. our families um and lee (laughs) as you say i i tend to be pretty serious as many of you know um but lee always had a sense of humor 
And uh, I appreciated that. And Maria, as was mentioned, she and Bruce uh, used to come to Pat's Pizza, uh, which Margin, you used to do too after uh, blind bowlers. And um, that was, it was always nice to see them. And uh, I think it was Pat that was saying that how um, Bruce, you know, was so gentle and caring for Maria, even in difficult times. And I didn't have the privilege of working with Kathy Bagley, but from what I heard, she was very good. And um, I know that Patty Sarki used to tell me how much that she had helped her. Um, so they will deeply be missed, but they've also touched many, many hearts and um, we're thankful for having had the opportunity to interact with them and know them. Thank you. Thank you, Pauline. I think um, it would be okay to, to break. I don't want to leave anyone else um, out if they want to share something. How, how um, many more How many more cards do we have to give out? Um, we are going to do number five right, at, right now. If you'd like yeah, to do that, good. we can do that. Okay. Yeah. I think we'll Lee, I, I hear Lee's voice saying, give away another prize. I, I, have, yeah. <laughs> I have a number for Alexa if that's what you want. Actually, <laughs> we're only on number four because Nick's not here. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Lost, though. Okay. okay, Alexa, pick a number between one and 21. Here's a number between one and 21. It's seven. Seven. Gene Monahan. Congratulations, oh, you Jean. Came just in time. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Yay. Oh, Congratulations, you, Jean. Thank you very much. You are You're welcome. welcome. All right. Jean's getting one every year, so gotta be like him. You <laughs> like him, Bruce. I know. You like him. He thanks. <laughs> Go get some lunch, everyone.